Hello, and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, president of Yankee Institute. And today we are fortunate enough to be joined by Ryan Fazio, Connecticut State Senator for the 36th District. And I'm proud to say my state senator. Uh, and we are delighted to be able to welcome you to YCT Matters, Senator Fazio. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Carol. Uh, as they say on talk radio, longtime listener, first time caller. Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. And and then uh, then I put you on hold. Right. And I comment. for a long time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but no, I'm not going to do that because we are grateful to you for joining us and curious about your insights uh, on the legislative session. Uh, and and I just thought it would be fun to hear because, I mean, clearly you are, in our judgment, one of the the rising stars of the legislature and someone who is very, very well informed about what's going on. And your insights are of enormous interest to us and I know to our audience. And so, you know, if you sort of carried away an overall impression of the 2023 session, like what would it be? How would you sort of characterize it? I would say this was a session of mixed results. If you think of um, legislative terms of the recent past in Connecticut, you remember them for the big headline fights that we faced. Um, in 2019, it was the fight over tolls in which I think common sense ultimately prevailed. In 2017, it was the fight over the budget where you had a 18-18 tie between both parties in the state Senate and famously three Democrats defected to vote for the Republican budget. And the ultimate byproduct of that was the fiscal constraints uh, that were imposed that I think are paying dividends for taxpayers today. In 2015, uh, Malloy's income tax increase uh, that resulted in General Electric taking its headquarters to Massachusetts. But this year, there wasn't any major headline fight. There wasn't any highly controversial uh, piece of legislation or initiative that was highly partisan. And ultimately, the budget that was passed, which I voted for, which I do have mixed feelings about, um, did include a middle class income tax cut for the first time in a generation that cut the middle class income tax rate from 5% to 4.5%. Um, and that's in large degree because the governor, Governor Lamont, is more fiscally moderate than his party and insisted on more limited uh, spending increases and a uh, one half of 1% income tax cut for the middle class. So, you know, I think that following along from the outside is probably going to give you the same impression as, as what I felt on the inside, that though we did have battles in the legislature, it was slightly less eventful than years past. And uh, there was probably more bipartisanship. It was probably a little bit more good this term uh, this session than there has in recent history in Connecticut, maybe in large part because so many of the bad things have already been passed <laughs> into law, but also because I think you have a governor who um, is a more economically moderate um, leader in his party and has insisted on uh, more restraint on spending in recent years, especially after winning a large majority in his reelection. So he has more political capital to spend. And in part, he spent it on uh, slightly better economic policies for the state. Yes. And it has been interesting because it does seem as though he uh, he is expressing a larger degree of confidence and a willingness to state 
his views and where he stands and and sort of get out there a little more than he did before his reelection. And uh, and it does, I think, impose a, a little bit of restraint on the far left most impulses uh, of that caucus. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And so you see some of the leaders in the General Assembly saying things like, we need to do away with the spending cap or we need to revise the spending cap, even though that's exactly what has enabled us to actually build a rainy day fund, pay down some of our pension and bonded debt. And ultimately, uh, after five years that uh, those spending cap, those um, fiscal restraints have been in place, deliver a small middle class income tax cut in Connecticut, which is something that um, is almost shocking to the taxpayer in Connecticut, who has um, almost grown used to being beaten down by tax increase after tax increase. But there is still that impulse in the legislature to undo those fiscal restraints because there's a greater and greater desire, uh, an, an unsatiated, always unsatiated desire from uh, many legislators, many politicians to always spend more, look like you're doing more, start a new bureaucracy. And I still see that in the budget we passed. There's hundreds of millions of dollars of new spending in the budget we pass that does not need to be there. And there is almost certain uh, certainty that the um, benefit are, are not going to um, uh, not going to line up with the costs of the new bureaucracies and the new spending that we're implementing. But at least it's less new spending uh, than we might have grown used to in the past or we might have seen um, with a different governor. Um, so we can do better. Uh, I believe that there should have been at least a one percentage point income tax cut um, a, a, a a total tax cut for the middle class of an excess of $1,000 per family in this state. We could have financed it. Um, there's a lot more we could be doing with the right type of leadership. But given the constraints we have, given the imbalance in the, in the legislature, I think that there was some good that came out of uh, this session. And I think Republicans and I think the governor deserve credit for that and many Democrats as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I think somewhere Matt Ritter said something like he would have spent 100 million more if he could have. And so, you know, I think there is that mentality there. But hopefully with the spending cap, which um, which our former policy director was on the commission when it went through, you know, it does at least impose some sort of external uh, guardrail. And then you have a governor who's working to do it. So let's move on to some of the other things. Um, you know, we saw you a very active part of a Republican effort to stop some of the radical housing initiatives. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, that was something where, you know, it was obvious you were really stepping forward because, you know, you want to make sure that people who need housing are taken care of. All of us do. But clearly you're someone who cares about local control of some of these issues and making sure that that it's done the right way. Can you talk to us a little about that? So at the beginning of this session, there were several initiatives to, I think, centralize much more state control over housing and zoning policies. And there is such thing as zoning policies on a local level that are too strict and that are unreasonable. There is also such thing as um, as an abuse of centralized power uh, in the state that totally diminishes the ability of local communities and local voters to have input over important policies in their locality. So I've always been, and there are many other legislators like me, an advocate for balance of trying to uh, have development, trying to create more affordability and economic growth in our state, while also respecting our time-honored traditions of localism, local control, and home rule uh, in New England. And I think we can do that. And I've put forward 
any number of proposals that were actually bipartisan, had a uh, Democratic representative who co-introduced them with me uh, in their nature. But some of the housing policies that have been proposed and one in, in a watered down form that was ultimately passed in which I uh, helped lead a nine hour filibuster on the floor this week uh, in order to stop will actually, I think, lead to horrendously bad outcomes. Uh, one of them is called the Fair Share Act, which, again, uh, in, in a watered down form passed into law, which will impose a absurd housing mandate and potentially make municipalities taxpayers liable in order to build it to the tune of billions of dollars. This would be the largest or the second largest unfunded mandate in state history. And if the earliest version of the bill ultimately passes into law next year or the year after, it would mean thousands of dollars in new property tax liability for the average person in our state, the average family in our state, not just uh, not just a more affluent one or, or some here or there. Um, and so that's enormously disturbing. And ultimately what passed in uh, in the, kind of at the last minute almost at the last minute, in the last three hours of the legislative session, uh, because of a parliamentary trick pulled by the majority, there was this, they called basically timeout on the debate. And when they resumed it minutes later, with no one paying attention on the Senate floor, called for a snap vote. Um, so it was through a parliamentary trick of ending debate that they were uh, able to pass it along party lines with actually one Democrat in the Senate voting against it. But it's the first step of this statewide mandate uh, and unfunded liability uh, being imposed on municipalities and local taxpayers. Uh, and it's Bill 998. Uh, and it sets up the bureaucracy for fair share. And it calculates the percentage mandate for each town under fair share. So this is the first step. This fight is going to come back next year and the year after. Um, and I think fighting for local democracy, I think fighting for sensible economic policy in a better way uh, that creates affordability and growth as well as respecting uh, local community input is the better way and it's worth fighting for and we're going to have to keep fighting in years to come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I'll tell you something, uh, you know, I think um, just localism in general is something that's very important to our state and in New England, you know, just even as as free people, because uh, as we talk with so many of the people who uh, support and, you know, and work with Yankee Institute, you have so much more of a voice as a citizen with your local government than you do even with your state government, with your state as opposed to the federal government. And all of us should be trying to devolve as much government as possible to the lowest level of government possible, because that's where all of us have the proportionately greatest input and ability to affect what happens to us. I think that's absolutely correct. And I think this is a um, a historic insight of American government that, mm -hmm. yes, the government that governs least governs better best, but the government that governs closest to the people, closest to communities also governs best. Because if you think about it, um, well, people can email me and I will respond 90% of the time, even though I get a lot of emails. Um, your local RTM or city council representative or your mayor or first selectman uh, is even more responsive to your concerns and you can get to know them even better. And if you kind of multiply that across communities, across individuals, across voters, you have just simply a much more responsive government to the needs and desires of the people, but also then you encourage more involvement 
of voters, of community members in their government if they actually feel like they're being hurt. A system of government that's more centralized alienates individuals, alienates voters more than any other type, because there is really no access to the people who are making decisions. They don't take individuals seriously. They don't need to treat them with that, as much kindness or respect or listen to them as much. And, you know, you, I, I ran for office for the first time a few years ago um, because I had strong opinions. But in the years since, I've really found that I think the most valuable tool, the most valuable, valuable ability that we have as legislators is the ability to listen, not to speak. And that's what makes good government. And that's what gets things done. It's the ability to listen first and then bring people together uh, because you've listened to the concerns of the public, because you understand what matters to them and what their values are. And so, you know, I, Connecticut, New England has a great tradition of localism, um, unlike almost any other place in the world, perhaps. And preserving that is worthwhile. It's worth fighting for. And we'll continue to do that in the state. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, the last thing before we move on, I would just say is I'm always very suspicious of any entity or cause or movement that wants to um, move power up the chain away from people, because it seems to me it's designed to be less responsive and to make sure that the people who are doing the things aren't responsive to the people that the things are being done to. And that's setting up a situation that none of us are going to like. Um, yeah, well said. <laughs> Anyway, Ryan, um, so, okay, so we've talked housing, you know, let's talk some of these environmental bills, um, quote unquote, right? Um, because one of the things that kind of gets my goat is a lot of these bills were told that we should incur all of these, you know, somewhat quantifiable, but obviously very, very high costs for promised benefits that no one can really quantify. Like, you know, we should do all of these things. We should pass a green amendment to the constitution we should pass uh bill 1146 and you know hand over power to negotiate to the deep commissioner do all these different things because it's going to in some way reduce carbon emissions or lower the chances of climate change and no one can tell us how much or what kind of benefits will actually accrue yeah you know it, it's difficult to keep track of some of the proposals that come through the state legislature because <laughs> um there are thousands of them and it's unbelievable how radical some of them are. And some of them actually proceed past committee and get close to passage and some of them even pass. So it's important that we stay vigilant, uh, even though there are so many. And so it's so difficult to keep track of. And we know that in recent years, there's been an attempt to impose new taxes, uh, especially on the energy sector, even when uh, people are facing historic levels of inflation and their real wages are going down. And that hurts working class people most of all. And so whether it's the TCI gas tax or another form of, of those implicit types of taxes or tolls or, or a new, uh, any other number of new taxes, um, this is going to continue to make Connecticut unaffordable. And almost all of these types of proposals, I don't see any clear environmental benefit to us in Connecticut. Listen, we value our natural resources. Exactly. We value our environment. We need to protect them. And protecting them means being smart. And it also means that we're protecting quality of life at the same time. Uh, if we don't have people living in the state it kind of defeats the purpose of protecting our, our quality of life and environment. It may be beautiful, but who's here to enjoy it? <laughs> exactly. Now, I do think, um, you know, it, it, if I may editorialize for a moment, of I do think 
uh, on the Energy Committee, where I served as the ranking member, meaning the top Republican uh, member, that we passed an energy bill this term that was bipartisan, um, that was co-authored by uh, the likes of me and Senator Needleman, which I think both um, respects our environmental uh, resources here in the state, um, but will also be the first step to reducing energy costs and improving energy reliability in the long term. New England is going to face an energy crisis in years to come that's unlike anything we've seen because we continue to add to demand on the electricity grid, especially by electrifying uh, home heating and electrifying our vehicle fleet. But at the same time, we're actually retiring generation uh, and the new generation of electricity that's coming online is less reliable forms of it. It, it only operates 30, 40% of the time, uh, 25% of the time in some cases. And that's of course, mostly solar and wind and the battery technology, uh, the battery economics are just not there. I think you probably need four or five times as much wattage in terms of battery power uh, in order to um, in order to compensate for the intermittency of certain renewable sources. So what we said is, listen, we want to further our renewable energy goals. We want a clean um, electrical grid, but we need a reliable and affordable one. We don't have that in Connecticut. So my proposal was to include more nuclear and hydroelectricity into our existing renewable portfolio standard. That took a fight, but it passed into law uh, under SB7 and with some modifications in the budget implementer. And that's going to put Connecticut on the map of saying, you know, as we're developing new and better nuclear technology, that we have a systematic way of welcoming it on the same um, on the same tier as uh, solar and wind and other forms of renewables because it is zero carbon. And guess what? It's actually way more reliable and we're going to have a reliability problem in the future. And I have nuclear advocates, um, people in the sector reaching out to me across the country saying, this is very impressive. You did this in Connecticut. They tried to do this in Virginia with a completely Republican state government and they actually couldn't do it. Um, so we're in some ways, finding bipartisan answers, finding answers that consider both our environmental values and our economic needs in the state of Connecticut. So I think that that was actually a positive this term where we've moved the state in the right direction and actually can make Connecticut a leader in correcting the wrongs, the mistakes that have been made in terms of energy policy. And that really is impressive because people who care about the environment, but also care about effectiveness, low cost and reliability, nuclear is clearly something that has to, to be looked into and something that has to be brought into the mix. And, uh, and that is a huge accomplishment, hugely impressive. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. By the way, of course, we are talking to Senator Ryan Fazio uh, from the 36th District, and he is the ranking uh, member on the Energy Committee. And that is a real piece of good news, because to the extent we can do that, Connecticut can rely on less expensive and more reliable forms of, of energy. And that is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, we don't want to keep you and keep you, but as we get ready to kind of wind up here, a pretty tough, uh, you know, aside from fighting back, um, and Frank Ritchie on our staff, as you know, uh, you know, plays a big role in uh, in working with us to fight pushback on a lot of uh, the bills that organized labor puts forward that would you know, really hurt or even destroy our small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of that was uh, pretty effectively 
push back on. But I know some people are talking about the fact that nothing really was able to be done uh, in terms of tax relief for our businesses. Yeah, and that's a big problem. And there's this business tax surcharge that charges a business for even existing here in Connecticut. And that's totally unreasonable and totally counterproductive to creating jobs and bringing in investment. And the fact that we couldn't retire that, even though it's just tens of millions of dollars in this uh, state budget, is enormously disappointing. Uh, A Yankee Institute has been fantastic about being a watchdog for small businesses and for workers in this state. The success of both go hand in hand. And they've noted, for instance, uh, that there have been dozens of new regulations uh, on on, on small businesses that have been imposed in the last several years. I think two dozen have passed the Labor Committee new workplace mandates in just the last five years. And more every single year are passed out of the Labor Committee and passed through the Senate. And it just sends a signal to entrepreneurs, to investors, and to workers and families who, who want to come here, raise a family here, who want to retire here. It just says, it sends a clear signal, do not come. And we want to say, come, this is an amazing state with amazing people and great communities and natural beauty and the perfect location. And it has everything to offer the public. It has everything to offer families, except the state government that says, we want you to succeed economically here. We want you to have an affordable life here. We want to create jobs here and we want to generate success. And so with those changes in our state government, with the change of direction in that fashion for our state government, I think the sky's the limit for this state. It's very disappointing that we don't always see that. And and in, in the case of small businesses and policy towards them, it continues to be putative and it needs to change. Um, but the sky could be the limit if we do change it. I could not agree more. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to convince um, some of your colleagues up there that that is the case because you said it. It's a wonderful state. And uh, and small business people, they are the backbone of, of America. They create a lot of the jobs, most of the jobs in the business community. We need them. Connecticut should have them. And they work hard. And uh, and we're going to have to see about that. Exactly. So, uh, well, Senator Ryan Fazio, 36th District, we are very grateful to you for spending a little time to get your thoughts on the legislative session. And uh, we appreciate your hard work, both as ranking member of the Energy Committee and in helping to lead the filibuster against some of these um very pernicious housing policies. Um, We look forward to working with you and your colleagues on both sides of the aisle to advance policies that make sense for our state. Well, it's an honor to be with you. I've been an admirer of the Yankee Institute for many years before I ran for government. Uh, And one of the reasons I did run for state government is because of the work Yankee Institute does. So I, I can't commend you enough on all the good work that your organization is doing. Uh, and of course, it's uh, it's always great to be uh, have a conversation with one of my favorite constituents as well. Well, we're grateful for you and your work. And so thank you so much. And we look forward to uh, hopefully talking with you again. And in the meantime, Absolutely. all right, thank you so much. Uh, in the meantime, we're grateful to you for joining us and for all our listeners, and we hope you'll join us again for the next edition of YCT Matters. I'll show you around this place I call home.